0: Notice that this story actually takes place after the resurrection. There, and there are already hints then in what we've just read that that the story has not come to a premature end. And of course, for us, we have the we do have the full story in our hands, and we know that there's more to come. But for these poor guys, for poor Cleopas and his mate, there's been a full stop thrown into the middle of a sentence they're lost and they're bewildered they're they're just going over and over again all that they thought would happen and all that did actually happen and as they walk along dejected you know i imagine they're they're going at a pretty slow pace as they're chewing this over as they walk along someone else someone else joins them and in response to his question about what's got them so, so distressed, so worked up, they explain about the events in Jerusalem of the past few days. They explain about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, and who had their hopes up that he was the one, that he was the one about to deliver Israel. And instead, he was betrayed, tried, sentenced. And crucified. They're confused about what's going on and what it all means now, especially when some of the women are coming and and are reporting that they can't find his body at the tomb, and that they've seen angels who are telling them that he's actually alive. And and the response of this third man, who we're told is Jesus, but they, they couldn't recognize him, his response is to say, don't you see that these things had to happen that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory. And from there then, he works through the Old Testament Scriptures to show them how Jesus' death was not in fact an unexpected and abrupt end to the work of God, but instead was very central to the core of it. Now we don't know the specifics of what Jesus told them. But they would have had multiple hours together as they walked a journey of more than 11 kilometers to this village of Emmaus. Now, we don't have that much time together, you'll be glad to note, But let's just look at some of what they may have talked about as they walked along the road. If We go back to the beginning of the scriptures and the Genesis account of the creation of the world. Right back at the start of the Bible, we read about how Adam and Eve, the very first people, they listened to the serpent who planted doubts in their minds about the goodness of God and he he prompted in them this desire that they could be the God of their own lives without the need of the true and the good God. And as a result, Adam and Eve, they rebelled and they sinned against God and the judgment against sin is death and we have then borne that judgment ever since. But then we have what's considered to be the very first promise of the good news. God speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is not saying that all women are going to hate snakes or that snakes are going to specifically target women. I don't think snakes and our attitude toward them, that's not a gendered thing. I hate them just as much as the next woman. So it's... (laughs) Didn't intend that to be as funny as that, but that's all good. My point being, I don't think it's a gendered thing going on here. And so what what this verse is doing then is it's pointing actually ahead to a specific woman and a specific offspring of that woman and the specific offspring of only a woman, which points us to Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And this Jesus, as the Son of God, has come to save us from the judgment of sin. And as such, the serpent, who, is, who we know to be Satan, he tries to stop Jesus from succeeding. And finally, it looks like Satan wins when Jesus ends up dead on a, on a cross. He ends up crucified. And it looks like, God, your plan of salvation, what you were working out, that's dead and dusted. It looks like God's salvation plan is derailed, but little did Satan know that actually this plan was right on track. For while Jesus' death was real, at the same time, it was only a a strike on the heel, where for Satan, it was a lethal strike to his head. And So don't you see, Jesus says, that these things had to happen that the Messiah had to suffer and then enter into his glory. In another place, in the Old Testament law, it says this, that if anyone is found guilty of an offence deserving of the death penalty and they're executed and you hang their body on, on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you are to bury him that day for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, Regardless of the legitimacy or not of the legal process at the time, Jesus was found to be deserving of death. He claimed to be God. And for the Jews, this was blasphemy of the worst kind, and it meant the death sentence. He claimed to be king. And for the Romans, that was a a treasonous attitude that could lead to insurrection, and so it needed to be put down, and brutally so, by death. And so Jesus was executed and he literally hung on a tree as he was nailed to a cross. And and as a result, according to this verse, he was under God's curse. Uh, And we see that when he cries out from the Psalms, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Apostle Paul would later go on to explain. He says, Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? Well, that is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse, and at the same time, he dissolved the curse. In other words, Jesus voluntarily took that curse upon himself because he, he knew that it wouldn't stick to him. And as such, he robbed the curse of its power and he set us free of it. Paul says it slightly differently elsewhere when he says, God put the wrong on him who had never done anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. He became a curse that we would be set free from it. So don't you see that these things, they had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory. Well, we don't know what else Jesus would have specifically addressed. But it's likely that he spent a fair bit of time in Isaiah 53 with them. Uh, Abby, are you here? Yes, perfect. Um, I've been stressing the whole morning looking for you. Um, This is a a longer passage for us, uh, Isaiah 53. But listen to the ways that it points ahead to Jesus and what he would do in dying on the cross for us. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, It was our pains that he carried, our disfigurements, all the things that are wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sin. That passage starts with the phrase, Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? That it would look like Jesus nailed to a cross and then buried in a tomb. Certainly, Cleopas and his friend, as they walked this road to Emmaus, they did not think that God's saving power would look like this. And yet, this was God's plan all along. Their thought of the Messiah, the king, the hope of Israel who would save them, their thought of him was that he would be victorious and glorious. But instead, they had Jesus, a man who suffered, who was beaten and tortured before being crucified. One look at him and people turned away. He was so disfigured and horrific you know, to, to look at at that point. No one would have been taking selfies with him because they'd have been turning away in just horror and revulsion. And this? This is God's plan for salvation? I mean, how is it even possible? It's possible... In that Jesus' death was a substitutionary one. He died in place of us. He died in our place. It looked like that He brought it on Himself. But rather, it was our sins that did that to Him, that ripped and tore and crushed Him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through His bruises, we get healed. Just as Jesus became a curse and so set us free from it, he bore our sin and he took our punishment and so saved us from it. God piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him. And as he took its punishment, death, he made it so that we don't have to. And this is what God had in mind all along. The plan was that he was to give himself as an offering for sin so that he would see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. So it's not that Jesus' death was an abrupt end to God's plan, but rather it was the fulfillment of it. For what out of what he experienced, Jesus, God's righteous one, will make many more righteous ones as he himself carried the burden of their sins. So Jesus carries our sins and he bears its punishment in order that he can give to us his life and his righteousness. But in order to achieve this, he had to go through the cross. And God then promises that because Jesus does this, that he'll reward him extravagantly with the highest of honors. So again, don't you see that these things, that they had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer, and only then enter into his glory. Now that glory will come, but it comes only after the suffering. And the glory comes because of what Jesus achieved through his suffering. He achieved the defeat of Satan, the neutralizing of of the curse of sin, and the bearing away of, of our sin and of its punishment, So that we, through faith and trust in Jesus, can instead have life, life and more life as we live then in his righteousness. So we're going to continue to behold Jesus as he hangs upon the cross by sharing together in communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. In doing so, as we do this, we take bread to remember That it was his body that was beaten and broken as he bore our sin on the cross. He took our punishment so that we may receive his life. And we also take the cup remembering that it was his blood, not ours, that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. Now the way we're going to do this today is we have two tables at the front of the church on either side. I'm going to invite you to to come forward. Come up the center aisle. Come to the cross, if you like. And then go out to to either table to collect the elements. There is uh, a loaf of bread there. And you will need to tear some of that that off for you to take. Uh, As as we remember, that it was his body that was torn apart for us. So some bread uh, to tear. And there's juice in individual cups. And if you are still more COVID safe, um, there are still some of our all-in-one packages that you can take uh, as well. Then, having taken the elements, having taken the bread and the cup, take them out and return to your, to your seats using the outer aisles this time. Um, and then take the elements as you're ready. As, as the team, we're going to play a song in the background through all of that. And in all of this, I need to say that communion then is for those of us who have put our, our trust in Jesus. You know, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, we are in one sense appropriating again His death on our, on our behalf. And so it, it's an expression of faith and trust. So if that's not you today, if you're not having a, a faith and a trust in Jesus, um, then just stay in your spot and listen to the song and I uh, encourage you to keep on beholding Jesus. Keep on looking at, at who He is and what He has done until you are ready to put your faith in Him for yourself. But Let's pray and then we'll share in communion.